From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And so I really began to think about Lynn, and as I talked to other people and read about Lynn, I thought these are about practices that should sharpen and sustain our ministry and our relationship with God. It should nurture our discipleship, right? It wasn't just for me a practice of emulating Christ's suffering, but really it's like suffering isn't the only part of Christ's journey. There's more to it. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm delighted today to welcome to our program Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She's a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. She is the author of I Bring the Voices of My People and Too Heavy a Yoke. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. So I want to start out by giving my listeners a sense of what it is that you bring to the table. In your biography, I said you're both a psychologist and a professor of pastoral care. Can you help my listeners understand where those two fields overlap and probably more importantly, where do they differ? Yeah, great question. I actually started my career and my education as a clinical psychologist did my master's and PhD in clinical psychology, went into a faculty position, was working in clinical settings. And one of the things that I found was that I was encountering spiritual problems that my clinical training had not prepared me for. So at some point, I realized psychology isn't enough. If I want to address people's needs more holistically, I need something else. And so I went back to school, left my faculty position to attend seminary. And it was really only when I was coming out of seminary and trying to figure out, man, what do I do with myself? I realized that pastoral care and counseling was this perfect bridge of psychology and those clinical skills and the theological and ministry skills that I had gained in seminary. So I tried to bring those together. In many ways, theology helps me because it allows me to ask the big questions where psychologists tend to drill down to like, I'm only focusing on anxiety. But as a minister, I believe God is concerned all of our lives. So I don't have to narrow down. I keep it big. But then psychology helps me to really think practically very often, right? I still think in terms of outcomes, right? What am I trying to do here? How am I going to do it? How am I going to accomplish this? What's an effective way to move forward with this? So that's how I try to bring them together. 
Well, Dr. Walker Barnes, let me make sure that I've heard this correctly. And I'm going to pull from an illustration that you use at several points in your book, Sacred Self-Care, the idea of maintaining a car. So if we're thinking about, and this is a rough analogy, a human being as something like a car, we could take it to a mechanic and a mechanic has a certain kind of tool kit that can help to diagnose and to repair problems that may be happening in the functioning of that individual car. But then we can also take a larger view and look at how that car is interacting on the road as it's trying to get to work, the traffic jams, the patterns, the bigger picture. Am I hearing you correctly that psychology gave you tools to help an individual person and then the more theological tools helped you see that person in relationship to others? Is that too broad a way of saying it? Would you say it differently? No, that's a great way of saying it, right? So theology helped me to think not just how is this person doing in their own life or even just with their own family, but how is this person functioning in the context of a larger society that has certain structures in place? How are they functioning in relationship to the earth, right? How are they functioning in relationship with God? And how does that fit into a larger sense of community and ethos of what it means to be a human being? What I really like about that is both with the psychology and with these more pastoral care theological approaches, what I'm hearing in both of these from you is that you were seeking again and again to not simply care for a part of the person who was there with you, but you really wanted to care for the whole person. Does that sound right to you or would you say that in a different way? It's absolutely that. I wanted to care for the whole person and I wanted to care for them, thinking about them as part of a larger whole, right? A larger community of people. And as you were, and I'm really intrigued by this journey that you took. So you went and you got a PhD in one set of tools, the psychological set of tools. And I don't know how familiar my listeners may be with psychology, but oftentimes there are dueling schools within psychology. Some that think that a person is just a bunch of mechanized responses. That's an older kind of Skinnerian kind of way. And then there are other kinds of ways of thinking about psychology that, that look at the chemistry in the brain as part of what's going on. And others that really take a more narrative approach and try and involve the person being healed in better and better stories. Can you help us understand a little little bit about what your training, what sort of schools were you trained in in psychology? Yeah, I was primarily trained in a cognitive behavioral therapy, which looks at us by virtue of our socialization and looks at our problems in terms of how do our behaviors, how do our thinking contribute to our suffering, but also family systems therapy. So I did a lot of work with adolescents and with children. And I was always thinking about how are family relationships shaping children and how are children being formed in the context of relationships and how does everybody in that family interact, right? But ultimately, I always say I'm eclectic. I've always been very much whatever works, right? And so if this is what works for a certain individual, I'm going to lean towards that if it's something else for somebody else. So I think, again, that is part of what leaned me a little bit towards ministry, this idea of I am mostly concerned with people's suffering, and I will use a variety of tools to help me try to alleviate that suffering. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She is a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. Well, we mentioned that you started in psychology and then you moved into pastoral care and practical theology. So you got one set of tools, you said the kind of cognitive behavioral tools in psychology. How would you describe some of the tools that you gained from studying practical theology and pastoral care? Yeah, so part of what studying practical theology and particularly pastoral care did, in some ways, it helped me to think more about what the goal of human flourishing was, right? It helped me to articulate a broader vision. Uh, Clinical psychology is very problem-oriented, right? You are depressed, I want you to be less depressed, right? You are anxious, I want you to be less anxious. But theology helped me to broaden my focus, to say, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be in relationship with one another? What does it mean to live my life as though I were made in the image of God? What does that mean about how I think about myself, how I think about other people, the ways I interact in the world? So I often tell my students that is that theology helped give me the telos, that Greek word we like to think of as what's the goal? What's the purpose? What are we trying to move people towards? And then clinical psychology helps me to operationalize that and say, now, how do we get them there? What are the concrete steps we can use to try to move people in that direction of that goal we're getting towards? I love this so much. And as we're setting the table here for our listeners, you've just put just a wonderful sort of dish right in front of us, this idea of human flourishing. In your answer just a moment ago, you began to flesh that out for us. But can you help us understand, particularly in a Christian context, when we hear this phrase, human flourishing, what should that be indicating to us? Yeah, I think human flourishing, it is very much for me tied into this idea that we are made in the image of the Imago Dei as we talk about in the Christian tradition. This idea that God made a world of people who would live in right relationship with each other, relationships that were characterized by justice and wholeness and peace, but we would also be living in right relationship to the earth and be caring for the earth and with right relationship with God. My idea of human flourishing is connected to the fruits of the spirit, right? So gentleness, patience, kindness, self-control, but also connected to these ideas of justice and righteousness and healing for the sick and relief for the oppressed. And so that's the sort of overall vision that I think is really what the Christian story is about. The Christian story is about God making a world in which people will act like they were made in the image of God, right? And that part of what we see is over and over again, God's activity in the world trying to move us towards that. I think that's what human flourishing is. So it's a collective vision, right? It's not just about how are you doing? Are you successful or not? Are you achieving your goals or not? But it's really about how we're participating in this larger story. 
I love that answer. And as I was hearing you give that answer, I I jotted some words down because I heard them ringing in the background. The words I wrote down were dignity, giftedness, relationship, and ecology. Do any of those really kind of grab you to connect to what you were just saying about human flourishing? I'd love to hear more. Yeah, all of those grab me, right? I think this idea that human flourishing, it does have great respect for human dignity. Freedom of choice, our agency, our ability to choose, right? That's part of what God created us with, an ability to choose. We don't always choose well, but that's part of it. That's part of having the ability is that we fail at it quite often. But it is also about us learning to respect that in others in the same way that God respects that in us. It is about the ecology of our relationships, the environments we're placed in the families that we're part of, the church communities, the neighborhoods, the workplaces, right? It's all of those things that, because I believe we were made to be in relationship. We weren't made to be isolated individuals, but we were made for community with each other. So part of human flourishing are our relationships with one another. I think some of my listeners might be wondering right now, as we're moving towards our first break, is there a certain quality of human flourishing that you can point to, like when you're interacting with someone in a therapeutic or in a pastoral manner? And is there something that changes in them that you can point and say, aha, now they're flourishing? Or is it more subtle than that? Maybe a little bit of both, right? And flourishing is dynamic, right? It ebbs and flows with the circumstances of our lives. We don't just get there and stay there. We get there maybe for a brief moment. Sometimes we only experience glimpses of it. Sometimes human flourishing, it is very individualized, right? What does flourishing look like for someone who has chronic illness or developmental disabilities, right? So flourishing isn't about perfection. It's about, it's not even about the lack of illness. In some way, it's about how much can you enjoy the beauty and the grandeur of God's creation and participate in that no matter what your limits are, right? So how do you flourish in the midst of cancer? How do you flourish in the midst of economic upheaval, political upheaval, right? COVID pandemic. How do you still say, but there's a way in which I can seek joy here and there's a way I can experience joy and participate in the joy of others. So yeah, sometimes... I may think I see it, but I also think there's a way in which we all have to define that flourishing for ourselves. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She's a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. She's the author of I Bring the Voices of My People and Too Heavy a Yoke. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. 
Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She is a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in social justice activism. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. In the first segment of our conversation, we set the stage and we talked a little bit about your training as a psychologist and your training as a pastoral counselor, how those two disciplines overlap and where they have some significant differences. Now I want to turn to your book, Sacred Self-Care. It is a daily practice for the readers, a way to get in touch with, and here's this word again, their whole selves. I would love to hear a little bit about the genesis of this book. How did you come to think, this is the book that I need to write, and this is the way that I need to write it? Yeah, this book is 20 years in the making, and it actually coincides with my transition from psychology to theology. Early in my career as a new professor in clinical psychology, I found myself being very stressed, and that stress was impacting my health. I was 30 years old, had high blood pressure, chronic pain, all sorts of other things that really I thought I shouldn't be having at 30 years old. And so I began to be very intentional about self-care. I realized that I had internalized a lot of habits of self-neglect, of putting everybody else's needs above my own, of putting my job above my, my own health. And as I began doing that, some of the things that I put into place were meditation, using affirmations, making better eating choices, being physically active. And I very quickly noticed an improvement in my health, greater connectedness with others, which I had not expected, right? That, wait, I'm caring for myself and suddenly I actually feel more interested in my colleagues. I feel I want to know how they're doing. I want to check in on them. And then I also experienced the strengthening of my relationship with God, which was another unexpected benefit. And thinking about that, reflecting on that, I thought, wow, this has done this for me. I should teach this to other people. And so I began at my local church in our women's ministry, teaching what was supposed to be an eight-week class on self-care and developing a sort of curriculum for that. And thinking, one day I'm going to write something on this, right? And for the next 20 years, I practiced self-care. I failed at self-care, right? I, it's, it was a lot of a cycle of relapse and recovery. I would say, okay, I'm doing better. And then I would find myself caught in the same thing. And I kept trying to figure out what is this thing I'm gesturing towards? Like, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? And continuing to try to advance my own self-care. At the same time as now I'm in ministry, right? And I start noticing these other ministers, right? Particularly, there were a lot of strong Black women 
who were accustomed to sacrificing themselves on behalf of others. But I noticed that regardless of race and gender, that seemed to be the case for clergy in general. I was working with a lot of people in urban ministry and Christian community development, people who are working with folks who are poor and marginalized, and they saw it as part of their ministry to put themselves on the altar. And I'm seeing the health consequences of this. And so what I found was in those settings, I kept being the advocate for self-care. I kept being the voice that said, what you're doing is really important. It is, it is great work. It is great ministry. And if you don't take better care of yourself, your relationships are going to fail. Your marriage is going to fail. Your kids are not going to be doing well. Your health is not going to be doing well. And eventually working with my students as we were hearing about clergy burnout, about people leaving ministry, I kept thinking, what can I do now that will prevent them from being in this situation? Are there ways that I can help bolster them against this? And so I began teaching a class a few years ago on mindfulness and self-care. I was trying to embed it into some other classes. I did it little bits of it in other classes, but I thought, no, I think I want to teach an entire class on this. And in the class, I began writing, right? And thinking about how do I frame this for them? How do I help them to get towards it? At the same time, other part of this is the pandemic, right? And this is what really brings all of this sort of general interest in helping clergy practice better self-care too. Okay, now book. In 2021, as we were nearing Lent and we are wrapping up the first year of the pandemic and my family was very serious about quarantine. And so as we're thinking about what are we going to give up this year for Lent? I realized, well, we've already given up everything, right? We've given up so many of the things that are valuable to us. Most of us have, we're not gathering with people the way we often do, the things that we enjoy, we can't do those, right? We're much more restricted. And I thought about one of my practices has sometimes for Lent is taking on instead of giving up. There's sometimes in Lent that I thought, what I really need to nurture myself as a better disciple and minister is to take on a practice, right? I'm going to be more diligent about my nutrition during Lent and eating in ways that are healthy for me. And so I thought, let me invite people into that practice. Maybe that would be helpful as I was seeing people on social media saying, I'm not doing lit. This doesn't make any sense. And I thought, there's another way we can do this. We can take on practices of care. And so it began as an Instagram challenge. I invited people into this six and a half weeks of lit. This from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, we're going to do a practice of self-care together. I'm going to put out a brief practice every day. Um, that's something that's designed that you can do it in a day. You can work it into a busy life. It doesn't require money. It doesn't require you traveling anywhere. And Instagram has a real short character limit, right? And so I had to figure out a way, how do I distill lessons on self-care into these things people can read in a matter of minutes and then figure out a way to experience some of that. And about halfway into that, one day, one of my ministry colleagues, she reached out to me. I said, this is a book, right? And I said, I think you're right. Is it a book? And so, yeah, that's how the book was born. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She's a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. I'm really grateful for the answer that you just gave that sort of shows the evolution of thought and how it moved from your work as a psychologist through your ministry to your teaching ministers and how this grew out of that. But in the process, I want to return to a phrase that you used and dig deeper. You talked about habits of self-neglect. And I really want to ask you, How are these habits of self-neglect that you're referencing, how do they find their nourishment, their soil, in a certain misreading of Christian expectations? Right. Oh, that's such a great question, right? So in Christian theology, one of the images, metaphors, ideas we have is the idea of the cross. And the cross as this place of self-sacrifice is really critical to our understanding, right? This idea that Jesus died for us, Jesus laid on the cross for us. And there are parts of the, the tradition where Jesus also tells us that we have to take up our cross, right? That's the hallmark of Christian faith. What I have found is that the emphasis on that teaching is often more for women that it is for men. And I think it's part of the, it fits into some of our gender socialization, right? As women as nurturers, as givers, as caretakers. But also many people in ministry then also internalize that as the goal of ministry is self-emptying. The goal of ministry is to get rid of ourselves, right? To diminish ourselves so that we might serve others. But I think there's actually another part of our tradition, right? Again, there is a lot of wisdom and a lot of respect for the self, right? This idea that each of us, God knew us when we were yet in the mother's womb, right? And that we are the clay shaped by this divine potter. There's also this other tradition in which we hear that God shares for us deeply and wants us to care for each other deeply, right? So there's this, we talk about love of neighbor in, in the Bible, and I get so much of that, love, you must love your neighbor. But we, all, we always forget about the second part of that statement, which is as yourself, which is that Christ also expects us to love ourselves. And that to some degree, our ability to love our neighbor is contingent upon our ability to love ourselves. One of the things that I really want to think about with you is as you're talking about this kind of self-emptying urge that we inherit, particularly the women in ministry, but we get it from a kind of misreading of the cross. One of the things that this ties into is something else that you said, and that is as you began your own practice of self-care, you found yourself being more available for others. And I think that sometimes the opposite narrative can take hold of us. If I empty myself, then I'll be completely available to others. But you're telling us that logic is not correct. First of all, do I have that understanding correct? And if not, please tell me how you would say it differently. But if I do have it correct, help me to think with you in that. How is this kind of non-commonsensical, if I take more time for myself, I'll have more time for others. Help me understand how that dynamic works. 
Yeah. And so first, let's think about this sort of self-emptying idea that we have, that when we self-empty, part of what happens is we often are stressed, right? Like if we are doing more for ourselves, not meeting our own physical needs, our emotional needs, our relational needs, right? Our spiritual needs even, then we're often operating in from a deficit. And when we get stressed, there are some things that happen. And this is where the psychology part kicks in, right? Our stress response kicks in. When our stress response kicks in, we go into survival mode. We are more likely to interpret challenges as threats. That includes relationships, right? People asking things of us, we consider it because we're already depleted. So it becomes a threat to our sense of we're already depleted and now you're asking me for things. Our ability to problem solve gets diminished, right? Because we're only thinking about the crisis at hand. We have lower capacity for creativity, for generosity, because we're going to hold on more tightly to what we have when we think it's under threat. So when we begin to do it the different way, right? When we say, wait, let me make sure I meet my needs first. Let me make sure, right? Do I need to spend some time in prayer today. There are an amazing number of ministers who don't have daily devotional practices because of the work of ministry, right? But let me spend some time in prayer today. Let me actually make sure I'm in relationships where people are giving to me as much as I am giving to them or where they bring joy into my life. Let me make sure I'm eating and raise this right from my body. I'm going to the doctor. I'm doing the things. Part of what that does is it alters the stress response. And as it buffers that and it lowers our stress levels, we have more capacity for generosity. We're not navel gazing, right? So when we're operating in, a, in terms of stress, it's all about my survival, all about my survival. But when we no longer have to do that, we can look up out at the world and say, oh, wow, that person over there is suffering, right? I've, I've got, a, I've got a, an, an abundance, right, of care and energy. Let me give it to that person, right? Oh, there's a challenge that's come up. I can deal with that, right? I don't consider it a threat because I'm feeling centered. I'm feeling grounded. I'm feeling strong. I'm feeling connected to God, right? I'm feeling inspired. So it actually really operates the opposite of the way that many of us think that it does, especially, I think, when we think about self-care as those practices that do cultivate well-being. Right, not self-care in terms of this time of hedonistic, right? It's all about me and only about me. But self-care in a way that is rooted in who is it that God has created me to be? What are the relationships that I'm embedded in? Right? How do I receive care from those relationships? How do I help contribute to those people's well-being as as well? One of the things that comes out to me again and again as I'm reading through your book, Sacred Self-Care, is and this ties into what you've just been saying. Not only are we stressed and we have this narrative of self-emptying, but we also have been trained not even to listen to ourselves to be able to know that we're stressed. One of the things I really loved about your book, Sacred Self-Care, is throughout each of the weeks that you take us through, you're encouraging your readers to slow down and to learn to listen perhaps for the first time to the data that their body is giving them. I would love for you to say more about that. Yeah. And that really also comes out of my own journey, right? In 2010, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. It took eight years to get that diagnosis. And the reason was I was not paying attention, right? Very often, 
by the time I noticed a symptom, it had been going on for a long time, right? Whenever a doctor would say, and how long has this been going on? I would say, I have no idea, right? I just, I don't know. I don't know when it started. I just know one day I thought, oh, that really hurts. Right. But like, and I think that's been hurting for a long time. But I also, my, my diagnosis happened because finally I started paying attention to all my symptoms. And I said, wait, let me pay attention to everything that's happening in my body. Because I kept going to my doctor. I had a really great attentive doctor, but we were addressing things piecemeal. One thing at a time. One time is back pain. One time is high blood pressure. One time is something else. And finally, I said, let me listen to my body. What is happening in my body? I started writing all my symptoms down. Took them to my doctor. He, he said, you have fibromyalgia. We finally know what this is. And it was because, oh, wait, I'm paying attention to myself and noticing. But I have been conditioned not to pay attention to myself in many ways to repress myself. Higher education does this to some degree. You know, I tell people, one of the ways you get a doctorate is you learn how to sit your butt in the seat and ignore all other needs. Your friends want to go out and party? No, I got to study, right? You need to go to the bathroom. I need to sit here and get more work done. You need to go eat. I need to get more work done. You need to go exercise. Maybe tomorrow, I got to finish this paper, right? That's how you get it done. And so many of us learn to do that. And ministry is very often the same, right? And we could describe that for many different careers, for many different vocations. We could describe it as an aspect of parenting, like parents learn how to ignore their own needs in order to meet those of their children. So part of what, you know, I do with self-care is let's actually pay attention to you, right? Pay attention to what does my body need? What is my body feeling right now? Is there pain there? That's a signal that something's wrong. What do I pay attention to that? Is there a symptom there that I need to consult with a doctor about? Let me ask somebody to help me with that, right? Am I feeling lonely? Let me address that. Am I feeling anxious? How do I address that? So, so much of self-care is really about getting in touch with ourselves, moving beneath the messages we hear from the world about how we're supposed to feel or what we're supposed to think, but recognizing each of us has unique needs and part of our life's journey is figuring out what those needs are and learning how to meet them. And so as a reader is coming to this, you're not just giving them busy work. You're not just giving them a set of tasks that will make them more holy. You're giving them a set of reflections to help make them more whole. Now, as I say it that way, am I overstating it or have I got the basic ethic of what you're about here? Yes, absolutely. As I was writing this and as I've been teaching this, one of the things I didn't want to do is to say, here's your five-step plan for self-care, right? This, it, you do this plan and you're going to be out frolicking in the field where you're a golden retriever, right? Like, like you're not, that's not going to be it. But rather what I want to do is try to invite you into to a journey of self-discovery. And that self-discovery is about figuring out what wholeness looks like for you. And again, it's going to be different for different people. Me as a two-time breast cancer survivor, it's going to have a different perspective of wholeness than somebody who's never had any medical issues, right? Or somebody who has been born with severe disabilities. It's going to look different for each one of us. So part of that is figuring out, what does wholeness look like for me? What is my journey to getting there? What tools are helpful to me? And so I offer a wide variety of tools and say, Try this out. See how it feels. How does that land? How does that impact you? Is this helpful to you? 
If it's helpful, integrate it into part of your self-care plan. If it's not helpful, move on, right? So that this idea that there isn't one size fits all, because that's not how we're created, right? We're created with lots of individuality and lots of diversity. And so our self-care, there might be some universal principles, but there's also a lot of, and what does my body need? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She's a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She's a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. She's the author of I Bring the Voices of My People and Too Heavy a Yoke. Today we're talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurture our whole selves. So we've been talking about the kind of ways in which the entire Christian project sometimes can push us towards self-destructive, self-negating, self-neglecting habits. And part of what you're trying to do here is to bring us back day by day over the course of seven weeks into more healthy habits. You mentioned earlier that you got the idea for this, first of all, from the practice of Lent. And you said that Lent most often is seen as a kind of, I need to give things up, but you suggested maybe we can also see Lent as a way of taking things on. I would love for you to say a little bit more about that shift in philosophy about Lent. How can we begin to think about Lent as taking things on, and how did that help to inform what you were doing here in Sacred Self-Care? Yeah, so I did not grow up understanding or observing Lent. I grew up in a Baptist church that did not follow the liturgical calendar. And it really wasn't until seminary, my first Ash Wednesday in seminary, when my classmates were walking around with black smudges on their head and I was trying to figure out why. Um, (laughs) And they started talking about what they were giving up for Lent. And again, I said, but why? Right. And so I was trying to figure out what's the purpose of this. So I didn't come to Lent as something that I was used to doing just by virtue of habit, but rather it was encountering what for me was a new tradition and trying to figure out, well, what's the purpose of this? And how does this serve me? And how does this serve ministry? And so I really began to think about Lynn. And as I talked to other people and read about Lynn, I thought these are about practices that should sharpen and sustain our ministry and our relationship with God. It should nurture our discipleship, right? It wasn't just for me a practice of emulating Christ's suffering, but really it's like suffering isn't the only part of Christ's journey. There's more to it. And so 
I begin to think sometimes that means giving things up, things that are destructive or distracting to ministry and discipleship, then yes, sometimes it's giving that up, right? And gaining more discipline in those ways. But sometimes it's about what are the practices that I feel like draw me closer to God? What are the practices that I feel like draw me closer to God's people and help me to better serve God's people? And sometimes that actually for me, especially I was doing this and starting this kind of in the throes of my self-neglect was that might involve me being more diligent about certain practices, right? That during Lent, I'm going to practice meditation and prayer regularly, right? It also meant that I approached these practices as not just limited to Lent, right? It, I thought if this is supposed to make me a better disciple, a better minister, well, why would I stop doing it on Easter? And so for me, Lent became a time, and I still approach it as a time every year where I reflect upon what will help me to be a better Christian disciple and a better minister, a better and more whole person. And how can I utilize the Lenten discipline to help me submit some practices that I need in my life on a regular basis? I really love that answer. And I want to circle back to something that you said in the midst of that answer. You said, if I'm doing this and I'm taking things on and I'm going more deeply into my care for myself, why would I stop this at Easter? Now, your book is structured over the course of seven weeks, so that's 49 days for the reader to begin to build up these habits of self-care. But what I'm curious about, Dr. Walker-Barnes, is the 50th day. What yes. does that look like for the reader in your ideal here? Yeah. So each week in this book has a theme. And this last week is about how do you integrate self-care into your daily rhythms? And the reader ends up developing their own personalized plan, right? You've spent these seven weeks. You've tried on these different practices. You've decided which ones seem to fit you, seem to fit your life. Then what are the rhythms of this? The last week is about now start figuring out what this looks like. What are the rhythms of this? What's your own? I talk about it as a self-care role. Like what is your self-care will look like? Your plan for how you're going to continue to live out self-care. So then day 50 is, okay, now I have this integrated plan that I've been working at building over the past seven weeks. And now I'm going to continue these practices. I figured out which of these practices work for me, how often I need them, I'm going to continue to live into this plan, fail at this plan, refine this plan, right? That is part of the, the continued journey. And so for me, and this is something that I do every year at rent, I look at my role of life, right? And I say, this is what I said I needed to do. What am I doing well? What am I not doing so well? What do I really need to be more intentional about and how might this year's Lenten season usher me into doing this? Or sometimes it's where do I need to grow, right? Maybe I'm doing the stuff that's on my plate. I've actually been doing that consistently well since the end of Lent last year. Is there a place where I need to grow now? So that what I'm trying to usher people into is we have this intense, intentional time of seven weeks to think about what your self-care plan is and develop it. And now it's time to live it out. Now it's time to live it out and to continue 
to reflect on it and feel its impact and to determine the ways in which it needs to be refined. What delights me about that answer is earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the concept of human flourishing, and we talked about dignity and giftedness and relationship and ecology. And then you introduced a word that I think really sums up what you're talking about here, and that's the concept of agency. You're not just trying to create automatic responses and habits of mindlessness. But what I hear you saying is you are wanting your readers as a result of going on this 49-day journey with you to come out of this with a stronger sense of their own agency in relationship to others and in relationship to God. Now, when I say it that way, have I heard you correctly or would you say it in a different way? No, that is absolutely right. That is actually what I've been doing with students now for Okay, I'd say seven years, right? I have a class where, but your capstone project for this class is your own rule of life, right? And I want you to produce something that it might not be what I produce, right? It might not be my needs, but it's your needs because I want you to pay attention to your needs and I want you to think about what do you need to sustain yourself in life, in ministry, right? And to develop a plan around that. And then how are you going to live into that? And so I wanted to invite readers into a very similar process, right? It is about your agency and figuring out what works for you. Because I think that's part of what it means for humans to be co-creators with God, right? When God creates humanity and says, here's the earth, here's each other, take care of each other, take care of the earth, we are being invited into a life of agency. I'm always curious how a book like this comes to be. And earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you were doing a series of Instagram posts and you got an encouraging nudge from a professor colleague who said, you know, this is a book, right? But I wonder if you'd be willing. I would love to hear from that moment of that nudge how you began to work with an editor and what that relationship was like in terms of bringing this book into the world in the shape that it's now in. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I had not planned to write this book. And, but then as that began to happen, I said, yeah, this actually does feel like a book. And so I began to work on the proposal and figuring out if I'm going to structure this into a book, what does it look like? I always start with a proposal. What's my plan? What's my, what am I trying to do here? What story am I trying to tell? And then how is this different from the Instagram challenge, right? The content's already out there. Instagram. So part of it was, what am I going to do different here? And I thought about the devotionals that I have found helpful, right? And one of the things I thought the Instagram challenge, because of limited time, had not had a lot of scripture in it. I thought I want more scripture in it. And then the Instagram challenge also did not have Sundays in it. And I thought I want Sundays and I want Sundays to be a deeper day of reflection that involves hymns and and a benediction because I love that sort of ritual. And so I began to think about, okay, structure. Now let's try to put this together. And I already at that point, I had talked to an agent some years earlier and finally went back to him and said, I think I finally got what I want my next project to be about. And so my agent helped me to refine the proposal, thinking about what is this, right? For me, this was also a point of transition from writing in an academic way 
right, to writing for more of a late audience. And so my agent, first of all, is very helpful about saying, break this down, approach it this way. And we began talking with publishers and found a relationship that fit really well. And so I was often in conversation with my editor, right? And say, I I wrote this, can you read this? Because I'm not sure this is landing the way that I wanted it to, to land. And she will often give me feedback. She would find words that I hadn't even realized were academic words. <laughs> and say, wait a minute, I don't think lay audiences might know what this means right away, right? So part of this was a new writing challenge for me as well. And very much a product of a community of people, including my agent and editor. Well, and you mentioned that this really grew out of your own personal self-reflections, your own attempts to slow down and bring some flourishing back into your life. But I wonder in the process of writing the book, what did you learn? What additional wisdom and especially body wisdom here did you gain from the process of writing this book and reflecting on it with this group of helpful editors and others that encouraged you? Yeah. I think one is that the book, well, let me say that when I first started teaching self-care, I did it for selfish reasons. I did it because I needed a class that would help me to be better at it. And I thought, if I'm telling students to do it, I am not going to not be doing it myself, right? So I'm teaching this class and I'm saying, you need to go on a, a day of retreat every year. And then I'd say, wait, when was my last retreat? That's 50. And so part of it was the process of writing these books, writing this book. Every book, there's a way in which it, there's a, some transcendent in the holy. I think all authors will tell you, you can write your stuff. You say, I wrote that? Like, I had the wisdom to, what did I have the wisdom? that Because I don't feel like I possess that wisdom, right? So there's a way in which it is tapping into the spirit. One of the great gifts of this book was the ushering in the deep engagement with scripture and also with our musical traditions because I wanted to include hymns and I kept having to try to find hymns that will support this idea of self-care. And so for me to really get to find the Christian tradition, right, and scripture, the biblical witness to say, what's here? Like, what is here to support this idea of ourselves as being worthy of care and living in these particular ways? It's not something we often get to do in the theological academy, right? We're, we're divided into these disciplines, and scripture is often considered to be the domain of the biblical studies people, right? And the rest of us are like, I don't know. I might not be interpreting this right. I have my personal interpretations, but I won't put it out there. And for me to say, to reclaim in some ways my own authority as just a child of God that all of us have to engage with Scripture, that was really deeply meaningful to me. I was 
so delighted to see the scriptural emphasis in the book, and you brought forth some of my all-time favorites, so the book of James, but also the book of Amos. And I'm wondering, as you were going and looking at these various scriptures, did a particular book of scripture or a particular passage of scripture take on a new life for you? Does something stick with you as a result of going through this process where the that particular passage or that particular book of the Bible now hits for you in a different way? Absolutely. The parable of the talents. I've never liked the parable of the talents. <laughs> you talk about all this generosity. You've been talking about forgiveness and grace. And then suddenly we get this story of this man who is punished because he buries the talent in the ground, right? I've struggled with that all through seminary. I've struggled with this. This doesn't make sense. But when I began to read it in light of self-care, I thought, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Those who have will gain more, right? Going back to this idea that when we actually tend to ourselves and nurture and try to develop that, it actually increases, right? And other people then benefit from that, right? That was the first time that parable made sense to me. And I thought, oh, okay. In this context, I can see if you bury your talent in the ground, you don't do anything with it, you hide it, you repress it, it does nothing for you, right? But that if you actually say, wait a minute, I'm going to nurture this. I'm going to put this to work. I'm trying to, I'm going to try to increase this, that it does. And that ends up being a blessing. So yeah, that was the one that really stood out to me as, oh yeah, this makes sense now. And now I'm wondering, as you started this on Instagram and as you began to workshop this with various classes, and now that the book itself is out in the world, I'm wondering how have you found the feedback to be? Like, what have people been saying to you as they've tried to apply this? How has this been meaningful to your readers? If you feel comfortable sharing that, I'd love to hear what the impact that you're observing from this book is. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the impact that I hoped for was that it would change lives and change lives often through changing health, right? Changing this sense that to cheer for ourselves is selfish and that we aren't worthy. And the book has only been out a week, but the preliminary feedback I'm getting from people is that this does change, radically change their understanding of self-care. They don't have to struggle with the idea that it's selfish and they see it as, oh, this is actually rooted in scripture, right? We do see models of self-care throughout scripture, but certainly in the life of Jesus. And so I've heard people say, yes, this has the ability to change lives. I've had a student who has been in my class that say, reach up to me and say, I've started reading and it reminded me of the lessons, right? This is really important, right? And so I think in many ways, I think this is the most important book I've written. And I think it's the one that will stick with people and will hopefully begin to transform our lives, our collective lives. Well, Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, you mentioned at the outset of our conversation that this was a book 
not only the most important book that you've written, but also a book that it took you close to 20 years to write, beginning with your studies in psychology and moving through your transition into ministry. I, first of all, just want to say how much I enjoyed the book. I know that my listeners will enjoy reading it and will benefit from exactly what you're saying, from putting the daily work in to discover their own agency as a result of your invitation. I want to thank you, first of all, for the time and the care that you put into the writing of this book, but thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation. We've been speaking today with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. She is a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. She's the author of I Bring the Voices of My People and Too Heavy a Yoke. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Sacred Self-Care, Daily Practices for Nurturing Our Whole Selves. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.